your Bibles now, if you would, please, and open them to the book of Revelation, chapter 13. And this evening we've come to our fourth part of this little mini-series that we've had on the Antichrist. I've called him the A in abomination. And Jesus called this man the abomination of desolation. Vine says that the word abomination, when it's used in this context, means an object of moral or religious repugnance. A.T. Robertson, I don't know if you recognize the name or not, but he is a, a Greek scholar of the 19th century, added this. He said the verb cognate of this word means to feel nausea because of a stench. And that's how God views the Antichrist. He is a stench in God's nostrils. He is an evil, idolatrous, demon-possessed world ruler who's going to come on the scene during the tribulation period. And, of course, that is the time immediately after God raptures his people from this world. And this man is the world's last ruler, and God sees him as repugnant. Of course, the world sees him much differently because they believe that he is their savior. The world has always been against God. Because the God of this world, Satan, has blinded their eyes against the gospel of Christ. And man is depraved through and through. And God is going to allow him to live out the very depths of his depravity during the time of the tribulation. And so God is going to let the world have what it wants. And what the world wants is not the Christ. The person that the world wants is the Antichrist. And that's because man has always been self-destructive. And if God leaves man to go on his path the way that he wants to go, this is what always happens. Man will take a headlong plunge right into hell. Now, these past few weeks, we've been looking into the origin and the character, the political alliances, and the career of the Antichrist. And these four sermons that I'm preaching here are really just an introduction to more information that we're given in some later chapters. And we'll find some more detailed things that we'll talk about as we go along in the coming weeks. But I'd like us to go to the Scriptures now, and I'll read the text again. And I was debating about whether for the third time I should read the very same Scriptures one more time. But I think that we need to do this. Uh, it's, all, it's all important, and we need to get an idea here of what the Scriptures say about it. So if you'd stand with me, please, as we read God's Word. Let's look again at Revelation chapter 13, beginning in verse number 1. And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was likened to a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. And they that worshipped the dragon, which gave power unto the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast, and who is able to make war with him? And there was given unto him a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies, and power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God, to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, and them that dwell in heaven. And it was given unto him to make war with the saints, and to overcome them, and power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. If any man have an ear, let him hear. 
He that leadeth into captivity shall go into captivity. He that killeth with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for bringing us into this place tonight. And we thank you for those who have come to hear your word proclaimed. And now, Lord, I just ask that you would open this up before us and help us to understand what you would have for us tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The vision of John, beginning in verse number 1 in chapter 13, is of a beast that rises up out of the sea. And that is a grotesque description of the Antichrist. Of course, we understand that when John writes about this beast, he's not speaking of a literal beast. It's not an animal. And as we talked about this, he's not really a sea monster, a sea creature. But he arises up out of the sea of humanity, and he embodies the, the combination of humanity and the and the worst of the spiritual world. This is Satan's ghastly imitation of an incarnation. This is a false Christ. He is an antichrist. He's a phony impersonation of the Savior. And this is Satan's attempt, although I don't think that he's able to do what God is actually able to do, but it's his attempt to, to indwell someone. He gives him all of his power. Now, of course, Jesus Christ, in a very different way, was the incarnate Son of God. But here is a man who... Uh, is given the power of Satan, and he brings to the people a pretended salvation from all of the economic, political, and religious disasters that occurred during the tribulation. Now, we've covered four parts of his characterization. I want to just very brief, briefly review those before we uh, end the message tonight. But number one, we talked about the prophecy of the beasts. Information that we have about the Antichrist is not only found in the prophetic book of Revelation, but there's prophecy concerning him in both the Old and the New Testaments. When we go into the Old Testament, the book that has the most information about him is the book of Daniel. Uh, Daniel has quite a bit there written about him, along with some of the other writers of the Old Testament. And Jesus, in the book of Matthew, chapter 24, referred to Daniel's prophecy when he talked about the terrible time that would come during the tribulation. And then we found that the Apostle Paul spoke about him. Second Thessalonians chapter 2 gives us quite a bit of information. And so as we look at all the scriptures that are put together concerning this man called the Antichrist, that if you are a true Bible believer, that you must believe that this is not a mere fantasy that we find here. Because there is so much information that is given that you could not reasonably deny that there is a person called the Antichrist, and if you don't believe he's coming, neither do you have enough proof to show you that Jesus Christ himself is coming. One is just as sure as the other. The second thing that we talked about was the parentage of the beast. He is of his father, the devil, and the devil's children always bear a remarkable resemblance to their father. And so we look back in chapter 12, and we find there that the beast very closely resembles that old red dragon that the Bible calls Satan. Satan has always had his kingdoms in this world, and his kingdoms have always persecuted God's people, whether that's in the form of Israel or whether it's in God's church. And so what the Antichrist does during the tribulation time is he gathers together all of the former world empires, the pieces of those old world empires, and he gathers all those remnants together and he brings them under one dominant worldwide government. It's a government that's more powerful than the world has ever seen before. And so all of the best or all of the worst, depending upon the way that you look at it, is resurrected in this kingdom of the Antichrist and all of these different 
powers and empires are allied against God and his people. Thirdly, we talked about the power of the beast. And his power is whatever God has allowed Satan to possess. You know, we, we simply cannot imagine how powerful a creature that Satan really is. And Satan has never at any time in the history of all the world given all of his power to one person like he will the Antichrist. In the New Testament, we read about demon possessions, but all of the possessions that are read about there are from demons or evil angels that are much less powerful than Satan. And so this possession is, as I said, sort of like an indwelling of Satan. It's his impersonation of the Holy Spirit indwelling the believer. Fourthly, we spoke about the personality of the beast. And his personality is everything that the natural man desires. He possesses beauty and charisma. He has charm. He is a very articulate person. He's just simply what every man desires. And he, he is so captivating that all unbelievers will begin to worship him as God. The devil gives him ability to do all different kinds of miracles and things that only uh, faith healers and wizards and charmers of the world could, could even dream of. To have that much power. He's prettier than Joel Osteen. He's slicker than Benny Hinn. And he's more mesmerizing than Obama. He's the whole package that's rolled into one. So that's the prophecy, the parentage, the power, and the personality of the Antichrist. Now tonight we're going to go on. And this chapter describes some more interesting features of this beast that comes from the sea. So number five, we want to talk about the purposes of the beast. Everything that the beast desires to do is centered in this one main purpose, and that is to defeat God. Any way that he can do it, by hook or crook, by accusation or assault, by prevarication or perjury, by power or pretense, anything is fair game against God. And anybody that he chooses to use or lose in that process is also fair game. In verse number 1, we see that he has seven heads, and on each of those heads is written names of blasphemy. Verse number 6 says, And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. So there's where we find his first purpose. His purpose is to defy God. Did you ever hear the saying, Actions speak louder than words? Of course, most of us have heard that. And if you're a Christian, there's both a negative and a positive connotation to that saying. Negatively, you can talk a good game about being a Christian, about being serious about your faith and being a believer and talking about your dedication and your service. But if you go outside of this room and what you do outside of there is different from the way that you talk and do and hear, then you can be sure of this, that your actions will speak louder than your words. Positively, you might be the kind of Christian who says very little. And you're not someone who toots your horn and you sound an alarm before you go out there and do your good deeds. And if you do, then your deeds, the way that you act in that way, speaks more about Christ than probably your words ever could. Well, in the case of the Antichrist, his mighty actions, as far as the world is concerned, are very convincing. He's powerful. And everybody, the Word of God says, wonders after the beast. But when it comes to his real ability to be able to defeat God, everything that this Antichrist says, is reduced to hollow words. All he can really do is talk big. He, he makes fun of and he curses God's name. And it reminded me of a story that we read in, in Isaiah chapter 36 about Sennacherib, who was the king of Assyria. 
Sennacherib sent his emissary, his chief of staff, to go to Jerusalem and to taunt King Hezekiah and try to get Jerusalem to surrender without a fight. So he sent his Rabshakeh, and that is a term that's, as I said, it simply means like a chief of staff. And so he sent the Rabshakeh to Jerusalem, and there he was standing at the walls of Jerusalem, looking up into the faces of those men that were standing on the wall, and he began to make fun of Hezekiah and of Jehovah God. And in Isaiah chapter 36, this Rabshakeh speaks out to the people on the wall, and he says, Where are the gods of Hamath and Arphad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim? And have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who are they among all the gods of these lands that have delivered their land out of my hand that the Lord... And that's very important that we see the Lord there in all capital letters because when you see that, that means Jehovah. That Jehovah should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand. Now there was that man blaspheming the name of God and that was a boast that Sennacherib was not able to back up. Well, for sure, he had defeated many nations that worshipped other gods. He had defeated Samaria that had turned away from worship of the true God. But here is a man that dare not stand face to face and mock God to his name. Let me read to you the end of this story. Hezekiah the king prayed about this, and this was the Lord's answer that he gave. Therefore, thus saith the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with shields, nor cast a bank against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return, and shall not come into this city, saith the Lord. For I will defend this city, to save it for mine own sake, and for my servant David's sake, Then the angel of the Lord went forth and smote in the camp of the Assyrians a hundred and fourscore and five thousand, one hundred and eighty-five thousand. And when they arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead corpses. Sennacherib didn't even get a chance to fire a shot against Jerusalem. After this happened, he returned to uh, Assyria, and he was worshiping in the temple of one of his false gods, and his own sons came and killed him. And so Sennacherib didn't die like a man in war. He died on his knees, bowing before one of Satan's false gods. So yes, you can count on it. The Antichrist will defy God. He will speak great words of blasphemy. But like all the rest who have ever tried that, his words will be defeated. God's actions speak louder than the Antichrist's words. His purpose is to to defy God. The next, his purpose is to destroy believers. Verse number 7, And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them, and power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. I've mentioned on several occasions in the study that when Satan is cast down to the earth, when he's thrown out of heaven for that final time, um, he puts all of his energy into preventing the millennial kingdom. Satan could not and cannot fight directly against God. And we see that in that war that takes place in heaven, that he couldn't defeat Michael the archangel, so how much less could he actually defeat God? And so Satan's plan then is not to try to come up against God directly because he knows he can never win in a battle like that. But Satan does not have to defeat God by going against him directly. There is an indirect method that he can use, and that indirect method is to destroy even one of God's promises. If he is able to destroy any promise that God made, and he destroys God's veracity, then God can no longer be God. And so what Satan does, he he goes against believers. He can't go against 
against God, and so he goes against believers. And since the uh, church is no longer in the world at that time, he turns all of his attention to Israel and tries to keep them from going into the millennial kingdom. And so if he can defeat Israel, who is the people of God, then he also defeats God. Now, if you want a hint at what actually happens when the kingdom comes and it is established, just look over in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 and 2, and there you'll find that for the whole period of God's millennial kingdom that, the, that Satan is chained in the bottomless pit. And so the old Antichrist doesn't want his daddy to be chained, and so he relentlessly attacks believers. And according to verse number 7, he has some success because God allows him to, to martyr believers. Many, many believers are killed, and perhaps even all of the 144,000 that were out there witnessing for the cause of Christ, the Antichrist will kill all of them. And all of that serves to do is to increase the power of the Antichrist, and it bolsters Satan's hopes that he can actually win after, uh, against God after all. So that's an all-out attack that he has against believers, which satisfies another purpose, and that is to delude the world. Now, if you go back to that story of, in Isaiah about Sennacherib and about Hezekiah, and you look at all those repeated victories that Sennacherib had over all of the nations of the world that he came up against, all the cities that he fought against, many of them actually did bow down and give up because they were afraid of what Sennacherib could do to them. After he had defeated so many, others began to fall in line and said, there's no use fighting against that guy. And that's the same thing that we're going to find in the tribulation, that people will begin to follow the Antichrist because he, they see what he does against believers. They see what he's going to do. If you don't follow him, he's going to kill you. And so they fall right in line behind them because they're afraid of what he can do to them. And then further, with the evil hearts that they have, they are just simply glad that Christians are being killed. That these people are getting what they think that they deserve. Now, God has already poured out much of his wrath already, uh, poured it out during the, uh, by the time that we get to what we're speaking about here. Much of his wrath has already been poured out. And so the people of this world are looking at Christians as the cause of all that. Because God's people are in the world and God's protecting them, they see how that God pours out his wrath upon the world. And so they think, well, we must get rid of Christians. If we can get rid of them, then all of our troubles will be gone. And so what the Antichrist does, he, he pulls out all of the old weapons of, of persecution that have been used in the past, all the old instruments of torture, things that were used like the Roman Catholic Church did during the Inquisition and the Holy Roman Empire as they killed millions of Baptists and simply just tortured them to death. And these people will see all of that and they'll begin to sing praises to the Antichrist right up to high heaven. So he deludes the world into thinking that he can save them from trouble. And when he comes out riding on that white horse, like it says in Revelation chapter 6, verse number 2, when he comes out riding on the white horse, people are going to sing his praises, and they're going to say, Hallelujah, what a Savior. This is the man that we must follow. And so the world is deluded to think that he has all the answers to their problems, and one of the key answers that he possesses is the onslaught that he brings against believers. Destruction of believers, the people will think that's the solution to our problems. So what does that lead to? Well, it leads to the accomplishment of his fourth purpose, which is to dominate the world. 
Verses 7 and 8. And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So there it says that all the world will worship him. Worldwide dominion, worldwide government, worldwide religion, unprecedented power politically and religiously. All of that belongs to the beast. Now, when we get to the second part of this chapter, uh, get past chapter 10, we're introduced to another uh, person there, and that's the false prophet. That's the Antichrist compadre. And what his job is, is to secure the Antichrist's hold on religion so that the Antichrist himself actually is religion. He becomes the people's God. And so with many signs and wonders, he does things that only gods can do. And so there's no president, there's no king, there's no prime minister, there's no chief of any people that's able to stand against him. So all power is then consolidated under his control. Now many have tried to do that. In the past there have been world rulers that thought that they had all power and everything was under their control. Nebuchadnezzar tried it, Alexander the Great, Hannibal, the Caesars, Napoleon, Hitler, all of them tried with measured success. But there's none of them. Not one of those prior world leaders that ever had Satan's power concentrated in them. And there's not one of them that ever operated at a time when the Holy Spirit had been withdrawn from the world. And there was no restraint that was placed upon men so they could go on and play out the worst of their wicked intentions. You know, today we think, well, there couldn't possibly be anyone that was worse than Hitler. No, nobody has really done all the atrocities that Hitler did. But Hitler had some restraint. You know, if Hitler had been able to do what he wanted to do, then no telling what would have happened. It would have been much, much worse if God had not restrained him to some degree. But when the Antichrist comes, he'll have no restraints. God is going to turn him loose and let him go as far as he wants to go for a while. And that's why saints are martyred, and that's why the Antichrist gains his worldwide dominance. But what we must not forget is that the Antichrist is on a leash, and the one who holds the other end of that leash is God. Now, it may be longer in the tribulation. God lets it out further than he ever has before. But don't forget that God still has hold of it. Now, that brings me then to the last point of the message, and that is the permission of the beast. There are four places in chapter 13 that contain one little word that bring us back to the reality of who is really in control. Satan appears that he's running things, and the Antichrist appears so, and Satan has given him a modicum of power, of course. But the real permission to do what the Antichrist does comes from the one who has always been the sovereign Lord over all. If you'll look in verse number 5, it says, And there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. Verse number 7, And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them and power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations now there we see that god is the one who actually gives him all of this and we look at that and we think well why does god allow this why does god let this leash out so long before he finally reels this in and i think the real answer to this is that God allows this because never before has the world actually seen how much power that the devil has. 
Nobody's ever really contemplated and understood to, to this degree how much power that Satan has, and God has to go up against that power and overcome it. And consequently, when God overthrows Satan's power, Satan's power, it is a demonstration of his own power. The full vetting of Satan's power is actually a way that God brings the ultimate glory to himself. And that's because when the greatest evil is overthrown, the greatest demonstration of God's power is revealed. And I think we get a clue to this in the book of Daniel. When Nebuchadnezzar, the king, was lifted up with pride, he thought that he was above God and the kingdoms that he had conquered had established the greatness and the power of his might. And so Nebuchadnezzar one day was walking along in his palace and he was thinking about how great that he was. And God struck him down and God removed him from the kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar became like a wild animal living in the fields. And for seven years, the Bible says that he ate grass like an ox. And it says that his hair grew out like eagle's feathers. His fingernails became so long and hard that they were like bird's claws. And you think, well, why, why did God do that? I mean, why, why such a show? What's God trying to, trying to do for, to get us to understand here? And the answer to the question comes in a dream that Nebuchadnezzar had just before all of that happened. He saw it all happening. And the answer is given to us about who caused it and for what intent it was caused. We find it in Daniel 4, verse 17. It says, This matter is by the decree of the watchers and the demand by the word of the holy ones. Now there, if you don't understand, the word watchers means the angels. Angels who consented to God's holy plan, and then they carried this out. And then it goes on, it says, to the intent. And there is the reason it's given to us here. To the intent that the living may know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomsoever he will, and setteth up over it the basest of men. I'm not going to try to tie this in directly to the Antichrist as a prophetic statement about him, but there is a strikingly similar uh, look at this. I mean, it's very close to what we see about the Antichrist. Seven years were set up for Nebuchadnezzar to act like a beast. God allowed a base man to become a ruler over a kingdom and ruler over his own people. And then, in the end, God finally shut him down just to show who was really in control. And so we look in verses 34 and 35 of that same chapter, and Nebuchadnezzar says, And at the end of the days I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes unto heaven, and mine understanding returned unto me. And I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him that liveth forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, and he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say unto him what doest thou now as I said you can't take Nebuchadnezzar and and call him typical of the Antichrist in some sense because the Antichrist is never going to reverse himself and praise God but it does give us a hint here of why God allows the Antichrist to do what he does God allowed the evil of Nebuchadnezzar to be brought upon his people because in the end God overthrows all of that evil and he shows how powerful that he really is. And so God, by doing that, establishes the greatness of his own power. And so if you want to know this, and many people ask the question, why does God allow evil in the world? God could certainly do away with evil. He never had to let it come. And I think here we find the best answer. God allows evil in order to overthrow it. 
And thus he demonstrates his power. Listen to this scripture in Isaiah 45. God says, I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. How does God create evil? Well, that doesn't mean that God creates moral evil, but it means that by divine permission, the creature works out all of the evil that's in his heart, and then God punishes that evil. And so God is the author of the punishment of evil, and by doing that, he demonstrates his power and his glory. And so I think that's the reason why, that he allows the Antichrist to do what he does and why that power becomes so great. So God allows the Antichrist to be his instrument of finally purging the world of sin. Now that is a very strange thing because without even the Antichrist knowing this, God is using him to bring about his purpose. And you have to see the irony in that. Because here is Satan... And God takes him by the tail and uses him to mop up the whole mess that he's made all the way back from the creation of man, all through these centuries. God takes Satan and uses him to mop up his own mess. Now, Satan believes that he's on the way to defeating God. He doesn't realize what's going on. He thinks he's on that way to defeating God when really what he's doing is carving out his own coffin. And he's digging the grave to exactly the required depth And then he's going to climb into his own coffin and then all of his hapless demons are going to come along and nail the nails into it and then lower it into the ground. Folks, do you see what our God can do? What God can do, he spins evil around and he makes it all work out for his own purposes. All things, Scripture says, work according to the counsel of his will. And then you know what's going to happen? All of us are going to be standing upon the wall and we're going to look down on Rabshakeh, the Antichrist, Satan's chief of staff, and we're going to say to him, boy, you have no idea what you just stepped in. You don't know what you're into. Now, let's look very quickly at three last observations concerning the permission of the beast. Number one is how much time he has. Scripture tells us how much time that he has. That's predetermined. Verse 5 says it's 42 months. That's it. His leash is 42 months long. That's equivalent to the last three and a half years of the tribulation. This morning in our Sunday school class, uh, Sunday morning forum, we had a, a question about this, is when does the Antichrist actually appear? Well, he actually appears at the beginning of the tribulation. And in the first three and a half years, what he's doing is consolidating his power. He's getting everything together. He's getting his complete act together. And then in the next three and a half years, the last part of the tribulation, he comes in full force against Israel and against those 144,000 and those that have been saved under their preaching. And then when those 42 months are over, and this man is at the zenith of his power, God cracks the slack in the leash like a whip, and then everything comes tumbling down. We read about that in chapters 18 and 19. And then Humpty Dumpty and all the king's horses are like Humpty Dumpty. Uh, All the king's horses and all the king's men will never be able to put him together again. And so those great swelling words of blasphemy of the Antichrist turn out to be as harmless as a child's nursery rhyme. Secondly, who does he take down? Who does he take down? Verse 8, And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Who does he take down? Every single person who gleefully follows him. All of these people who watched him torture and kill God's chosen people, 
God will bring in his millennial kingdom just like he promised. The Antichrist won't be able to prevent it. Despite all of his blasphemous claims and threat and all of his temporary displays of power, he simply cannot prevent the millennium from coming. But what's God going to do with all of these? Well, God's not going to kill all of these unbelievers just yet. The Antichrist and his buddy, the false prophet, will be thrown into hell. They'll be taken off the throne in Jerusalem and cast into hell. But when the millennium comes, you have all of these people that were following the Antichrist, and God's not ready to pass judgment on them yet. So these are the people that go into the millennial kingdom. Now, I've told you my viewpoint about this before. It's a little bit different than some people have. I don't believe that there's going to be anyone saved during those 1,000 years of Christ's reign. I believe that the full complement of the elect have already believed. The judgment of Christ, seat of Christ, has already taken place, and all of the redeemed are now ruling and reigning with Christ. We come with him to rule in that millennial kingdom. Now, the other people are ones that are unsaved, and they're going to go into that millennial kingdom. And what does the word, God, word of God say about them? It says that he's going to rule them with a rod of iron. I don't think that anybody's going to be happy who's not saved who goes into the millennial kingdom. They're not going to be happy because uh, before they had no one to restrain their evil. But now they're going to be miserable because they can't live out that depravity any longer. Now, can you imagine what it would be like for San Francisco to be forced to live under Christ rather than Gavin Newsom? And can you imagine what it would be like for the staff of Berean Baptist Church to be running City Hall in San Francisco? Uh, You know, instead of the likes of Harvey Milk and that bunch? Quite a different story, I think. This is not going to be a picnic for unbelievers. I think it's a wrong idea for people to think, oh, everything's going to be hunky-dory during the millennial kingdom. Lost people are going to be having a great time there because there's all peace and the lion lays down with the lamb and you have all of that. And so you have Reverend so-and-so, like one of these guys I saw in Larry King not long ago, and he was talking about when that millennial kingdom comes, how there's going to be peace all over the entire world, and we're really longing for Isaiah chapter 11 to take place. I think people are going to be sorely upset when they go into this and they find out that what Christ is doing is ruling with a rod of iron. That's what Scripture says. And, and as I, I've told you, certainly God is not ruling his own people with a rod of iron. Who's it talking about? It's speaking of unbelievers. So it's not a picnic for them. God's people that are ruling with Christ, they enjoy what's going on in the millennial kingdom. But there is no promise for an unsaved person that they want to live under the reign of Christ. God's people love Christ. People that are lost don't love Christ. And so they're not going to be happy in the millennial kingdom. And so the Antichrist is going to take all of them down, only their judgment comes a little bit later. Thirdly, then, we want to look at who never trust him, who won't go down with him, who won't follow him. Well, he gains no followers among those who have their names written in the book of life. Those people will never take his mark. They're never going to follow him no matter how long it goes on or how bad that it gets. You know, I think there's a lot of people that have read too much of the Left Behind series And in the Left Behind books, they claim that there are some Christians who will take the mark of the beast. Let me tell you how much I think is too much of reading Tim LaHaye and uh, Jerry Jenkins' Jenkins fictionalizing of the Bible. Here's my answer to that question. How much false doctrine is too much? How much denial of the truth is too much for you? How much 
prevarications? And how, how much of twisting and fictionalizing the Bible can you take? And when you figure that out, then you've figured out how much of that series that you ought to read. Wherever you set your limit, that's how much you ought to read. Now, the truth of the matter is that there are none of God's people that receive the mark. This is as sure as their election and their salvation because God's word says it is so. Now, we're going to get to it a little bit later, but in chapter 20, verse number 4, it says this, And I saw thrones, and they that sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The beast is never going to take them down. They will never trust him. And you know why? Because their names are written in God's book. And their names have been written down there for thousands of years. And they're going to go into Christ's kingdom. And they're going to rule and reign with him. So here we have the A in abomination. God's people don't need to fear this. We don't need to fear this. Because when that trumpet sounds, we're going to be with Jesus. And we sing the song, when I die, hallelujah, by and by, I'll fly away. And I'll tell you, if I don't die, I'm still going to fly away. And I hope that you're going with me. Now, if you're not, if you're not saved, then you need to fear this guy called the Antichrist because, friend, he will take you down. In the next message, we're, which will be a little bit later on, a uh, few weeks, I'm going to come back to verse number 8. And what we're going to do as we look at verse number 8 We're going to explore this just a little bit, and we're going to open up this book that God wrote before the foundation of the world. We're going to talk a little bit about the names that were written down. Praise God for the names that are written down. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who triumphs over all. As your word says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that you must reign until all enemies are put under your feet. And, Lord, we know that that's going to take place. It's as sure as we're alive today, as sure as we're standing here, and even more sure because it's as sure as God himself. And, Lord, we thank you for salvation that we have in Christ. And I pray that if there's anyone here who doesn't know you as Savior, that they would recognize the horrible jeopardy that they're in because you could come at any time, your word says, and all these things would be ushered in upon us Very, very quickly. Everything's going to take place quickly. And Lord, there's not going to be any time to make decisions, not any time to read more of the Bible, not any time to contemplate any of this. But when you come, all things are ready to be consumed and all things are ready to be wrapped up and the world comes to an end. So I pray, Lord, for those who don't know you, that they would receive you as Savior even tonight. And, Lord, may we be witnesses of this wonderful truth that you've given us in your word, that Jesus saves, Jesus saves. And that's the way that we make it into your everlasting kingdom. Bless as we sing tonight, Lord. Bless our people, and we give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.